Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Go ahead, Zach. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hi, it's David Rothkopf, your host, and since it's Thursday, we're coming to you from New York City, where I am, as I am on every Thursday, with Ryan Goodman, Hi, Ryan. Hi, David. And from Washington, D.C., we have two terrific guests. Um, Kelly Magsiman, uh, who runs the security program at the Center for American Progress. Would that be an accurate way of saying it, Kelly? Yes. Um, and who is an NSC veteran. And another NSC veteran, Sam Vinograd, who is uh, a commentator and regular presence on CNN these days. Hi, Sam. Hey, David. Uh, So we had a lot of NSC in the news. Maybe we should start with the NSC. Um, uh, I I saw you had written something, Sam, that was akin to what I had been writing, which was um, the departure of John Bolton um, is revealing of a particularly dysfunctional uh, NSC, and then I I saw something that Susan Glasser wrote in the New Yorker, in which she said this is the end of the NSC as we know it, um, which you know I think she's referring to the fact that Bolton hasn't had principals meetings, he hasn't had deputies meetings, he was cut out of meetings on Afghanistan, he was cut out of the Kim Jong Un uh, summit, literally sent to Mongolia, which is kind of a punchline of a joke, but 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 he was sent there. Um, so, you know, there isn't an NSC really to speak of, and the president doesn't like to take advice. But, Sam, do you think it's the end of the NSC as we know it? Well, that kind of depends on 2020, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, honestly, it depends on who's president. The president chooses whether or not to use his NSC. John Bolton was national security advisor in name only. I served under two national security advisors. Kelly, you served under more. John Bolton performed none of the core functions of National Security Advisor. He didn't have the president's ear. He didn't convene meetings. And ostensibly, he just leaked a lot of stuff to the press. That said, the president has to decide to engage his National Security Council. And we know that President Trump spends more time talking to a shadow cabinet of, I don't know, despots, Fox News pundits and voices in his own head rather than actually sitting down with his national security team. So, The NSC may be dead until the 2020 election, but here's to hoping that uh, for a variety of reasons, a president wins and a candidate wins in 2020 who actually engages the process, because otherwise we have what we have right now, which is a man making decisions on the fly without any information, without any analysis, and just based on a feeling. We have to make national security policy on more than a feeling. Um, One would hope so. Uh, Kelly, how do do you look at the events surrounding Bolton's departure. Do you think they're significant or do you think they're not really because he wasn't actually doing the job? Yeah, I guess I come at it from uh, the perspective that, you know, presidents get the process they want. 
Um, and it's clear that Donald Trump doesn't want a national security process. I think that was clear from day one, frankly, long before John Bolton walked in the door. And in some ways, you know, Bolton was a one-man show, one-man operation. He had his own little obsessions around, you know, international law and disagreements with the United Nations. He didn't really focus on any of the things that Trump actually cared about. Pompeo has been, you know, taking the lead on all the big foreign policy issues, whether it's North Korea or Iran. So Bolton was already somewhat obscure uh, in the Trump orbit. So in some ways, I'm not surprised uh, that Bolton didn't last. At the same time, I'm kind of surprised he was there as long as he was <laughs> for the same exact reasons. So, you know, from, from my perspective, what worries me the most is that we're not going to have the end of the NSC, but that, you know, departments and agencies are going to be learning a bad NSC process <laughs> or lack thereof. And that could have a potentially, you know, lasting impact on how the bureaucracy reacts to the national security uh, decision-making process. Well, you know, as 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 the process goes, it kind of went. You know, that that he had a team, he brought in at the beginning, um, uh, uh, Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State, gone, uh, Jim Mattis, Secretary of Defense, gone, Dan Coats, Director of National Intelligence, gone, Mike Flynn, convinced, uh, self-confessed felon, uh, gone, H.R. Uh, McMaster, gone. Uh, although Trump apparently had a phone call with him this past week, going, "Hey, buddy, I miss you." Um, kind of... <laughs> I don't think those feelings were reciprocal. <laughs> no, I'm go out on a limb here. Yeah, do I, no, I don't. I don't think they were either. And then, and and then Bolton. So, so Ryan, you know, the entire National Security Cabinet, with one exception, Mike Pompeo, is mm. disappeared. What makes Mike Pompeo different? Um, I think Mike Pompeo. Uh, wants to inherit the mantle from Trump when he runs for president, and he's playing a long game. <laughs> he's playing. He's playing a long game. But you, you know, speaking of Susan Glasser, she did have that New Yorker yeah. article in which a, a former uh, ambassador uh, referred to Pompeo as being a kind of heat-seeking missile for Trump's ass. <laughs> Best line ever. <laughs> Uh, but but it, it it does speak to the fact that Trump doesn't want advisors. He wants yes men, sycophants, and and Mike Pence, who is a sycophantic yes man. Right, and it's actually interesting the similarity between Pence and Pompeo in that regard, in terms of how much they just line up uh, behind him, uh, because they think that they can, I think, uh, inherit his base. Um, yeah, yeah and, I th and I think this you know puts us at risk that we don't understand. You know. Um, Sam, the, the 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 Trump administration, for all of its lousy foreign policy so far, whether you want to criticize the North Korea, you know, non-negotiations which have led to North Korea ending up with actually more nuclear warheads than they started, uh, or the Iran, uh, you know, uh, fiasco which we pulled the JCPOA, and now Trump's sort of dangling cash in front of the Iranians to come and meet with him and. You know, speaking about being willing to 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 back a big loan to them, uh, or the bad relations with the NATO, or all you know, we can make the list. But the 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 reality is, Trump has not faced the kind of crisis that makes a National Security Council crucial, where you really need everybody in the room, you really need advice in real time, you really need to yeah. implement together. And so, you know, I'm. I'm Go I'm going to disagree with that characterization for a moment because I think 
Trump has faced that crisis. That crisis is Russia's ongoing attack on our country, which preceded him coming into office. But arguably, Russia's attack on our country is an existential threat to our democracy, an existential threat to our infrastructure, to our information, and to our standing in the world. It's a type of issue any other president would have been convening regular National Security Council meetings on because of the depth and the breadth of the, of, of the threat. Trump obviously hasn't done that for a variety of personal reasons. But, you know, just to be clear, under, under any other president, I think he would have had, I don't know, Kelly, what do you think, like a, a weekly sit room, two hour NFC meeting down there figuring <laughs> out what to do. And we did our fair share of these. But he has had, the, had, he has had these crises. You mentioned North Korea. North Korea shooting short-range projectiles every couple of weeks under any other president would have been a crisis. And I could, I could go on. The issue is that Trump kind of downplays these things, underuses the process, mitigates the bad stuff, and then creates fake crises of a political nature that he tries to kind of flood the zone with so we take our eye off the ball on all this other stuff. But I think I think the Russia stuff what, it is an existential crisis that the NSC should be handling. Well, I agree with you. But, you know, it's, it's much like uh, the, the, the national security advisor's job is what the president sees the job as. The, the, a crisis is what the president sees as a crisis. And the president sees Russia meddling in our elections, to use a term I don't particularly like to use, but, but attacking our democracy um as as a, 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 a not a, 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 a yeah he sees it as a, he doesn't see it as a bad thing he sees it as a as a as a, as a positive thing and it's part you know, of the affirmative agenda david right it's not a bug it's a feature and <laughs> and and if you look at at trump foreign policy um he not only has blocked investigations into that, accepted the Russian explanations for it, um, made it unlikely that the administration will do anything to block further attacks. But, you know, systematically, he's given uh, the Russians um, room to do what they want in Ukraine. Apparently, the story came out this week that, you know, the uh, aid money that was voted to Ukraine isn't actually going to Ukraine. He gave them sort of free reign in Syria. All these Afghanistan stories, um, you know, Kelly, have Russia more in the lead on on some key elements of it than us. Uh, got us out of the INF Treaty, which, you know, gives the Russians a little bit more elbow room, obviously attacked our NATO allies, talk, supported the weakening of the EU. He, he's not just, you know, tolerating this Russian attack. He's not seeing it as a crisis. He's embracing it, and he's embracing a, a, a pro-Russia foreign policy. And I, I don't think that's an overstatement, Kelly, but perhaps, perhaps you think I'm being <laughs> intemperate. No, no, I, I think that's about right. But I, you know, to add on to, to Sam's good observation, I, I think that the entire Trump presidency is a national security crisis that's essentially unfolding in, in slow motion. So whether it's it's like a boiling the frog scenario around the global order. So everything from undoing the Iran deal and the North Korea stuff and the China trade disaster that he has he has unleashed upon uh, America's workers or the Russia stuff. I mean, this is. He is essentially single-handedly handicapping the United States on the international stage and handicapping our national security on a day-to-day basis. And I think the challenge is that, you know, it's happening every day at such a scale 
that I think it's hard to comprehend the, comprehend the damage that he's, that he's doing within even the last couple of years. So imagine, you know, another six years of this. Yeah, just as you say it, I'm flashing back. You guys were in NSC meetings more recently than I was, and I'll date myself by saying this, but I remember, you know, going to an NSC meeting, which was a joint NSC-NEC meeting on the uh, state of the Haitian currency around the time of the invasion of Haiti. Haiti. In other words, we got pretty granular Mm -hmm. and brought all the agencies together to deal with these issues in a pretty... um, you know, granular way. One of the things that strikes me, Ryan, is the bandwidth of the U.S. government, the inputs of the U.S. government, the resources that are there to help a president are just being completely ignored here. Yeah, and I, I and I just want to underscore in that regard. I think something that Kelly said, which um, really resonated with me, which is that these are institutions that learn and create cultures and environments in which they understand their relationship to one another and the damage that's being done even in the next, uh, let's say, 14 months is tremendous in terms of what it will do for the next four years, whoever's the president. Um, So the long-term damage that we have to think of from this. And the other part about the the Trump administration, the Trump so-called foreign policy, is that on some of these things, there is actually a straight line. You can draw the through line on Russia, very pro-Russia. You can draw the through line on China and his unwillingness to back off, even in the face of just unrelenting um, information about how bad this is for the world economy. But in the other pieces of it, it's just utterly erratic. So to have H.R. McMaster in the threesome of the national security advisors shows how erratic this is. Like, what does he want out of his national security advisor? I'm not sure he completely knows. Or what does he want with Iran? Because he came apparently within 10 minutes of militarily attacking Iran and then pulled back. And now it looks like he's about to shift directly into doing something that looks like a plane load of money <laughs> going over to Iran, which is <laughs> the piece that he campaigned against. So it's that there's this other head-jerking... 360-degree turnarounds um, that I think is also incredibly um, unstable for yeah. the country to even make it through the next 14 months. Well, I think yeah, that... And go ahead. I'm just going to add, you know, it's super interesting. Obviously, national security advisors have all used a role differently. And David, as you said, the national security advisor's job is to implement the president's guidance. But I don't know. I think that there's, there is a fear of getting fired, a fear of something... And we know that there's been censorship internally as well, such that people, whether it's a national security advisor or staff, don't feel comfortable bringing issues to the president. And so, you know, under Obama, Kelly and I served under Jim Jones, General Jim Jones, and then Tom Donilon. The president relied on the national security advisor to flag issues that may not be on his radar. So the national security advisor was implementing the president's policy. But also when there are things that the president may not be aware of or may not be paying as much attention to, he trusted the NSA to say, Mr. President, you need to pay attention to this. Seriously, can you imagine John Bolton, H.R. McMaster, whomever replaces John Bolton, doing that with this president (laughs) and saying, hey, Mr. President, you know, Russia's up to this activity or, hey, Mr. President, North Korea is really not going to denuclearize. We know what happens when people do that. They get fired and they get rage tweeted at. 
so the whole system, both kind of going the the whole cycle of um, guidance and implementation and information, is has has been turned upside down. Well, another thing, you know, Kelly, uh, you know, that Trump has devalued the NSC process. He says he doesn't want any advisors. I, I I would say, by the way, that if you looked at the White House and the traditional hierarchy, where the National Security Advisor is the senior most advisor in foreign policy in the White House, in this White House. Uh, he clearly was outranked by Ivanka, Jared, and on border mm-hmm. issues, Stephen Miller, um, who yeah. they, they had they had more clout than he did. And apparently, even acting chief of staff Mick Mulvaney was running the coordination between agencies because Bolton wasn't running it. So he was kind of fifth man down. But all of this leads to Trump getting the national security process he wants, which is Trump. And that, you know, after three national security advisors, regardless of who gets the job, um, it, it seems very likely that you're going to get an even Trumpier foreign policy going forward, which is to say erratic, ill-informed, politicized, self-centered, um, uh, or narcissistic. Um, and and, and that's, that's worrisome because I would say, Kelly, that the president has shown a remarkable uh, inability to learn how to do this yeah. stuff going forward. Well, I think it's worse than that. I, I think he actually is becoming more and more confident in, in his own erraticism. And I actually think, you know, we're likely to see in the next couple of years, especially as we head towards elections, even more Trumpian maneuvers, whether it's, you know, calling up uh, Rouhani and wanting to have talks or meet in Tehran. I mean, I, I think that we're going to see a lot more churn uh, on the foreign policy stage, in part because that's the easiest place for the president to have impact, because uh, he's going to be somewhat constrained by Congress. But I think this is we're going to see more of this. And so my question is, whoever is coming next? I mean, first of all, who wants to be Donald Trump's national security advisor at this stage? Like nobody wants who who wants that job. And if you do want that job, then you probably are not the right person uh, for the job. So you know you're you know what you're getting at this point. Um, so I suspect we'll see you know somebody even more syncophantic, maybe a Grinnell uh, or someone along those lines, uh, maybe even Tucker Carlson. Hey, he seems to listen to Tucker quite a bit on, wow. on Fox News for national security advice. So that, that should make us all feel really safe at night. Wow. <laughs> you know, Rosa Brooks is not here for this podcast, but, you know, she holds permanently the thorny crown of entropy um, here at Deep State Radio for having the bleakest view. Um, and Kelly, <laughs> Kelly, I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to give that to you, right? I mean, that that's that's uh, pretty horrifying, Tucker Carlson, or, or Grinnell, by the way, who yeah. I think is one of the worst diplomats America has ever fielded um, with the possible, you know, exception in this in this term of of David Friedman and Israel. I mean, there are a couple of really, really bad diplomats, but, um, uh, and you left out, you know, the obvious choice for national security advisor, Lou Dobbs, but, um, (laughs) uh, um, but, but, um, Ryan, I I got interviewed by, um, and this is how Washington works, you know, by David Sanger, who's a regular on our show, um, because he and Peter Baker, um, husband of aforementioned Susan Glasser, did a story today on what might come next at the NSC. Mm. And the thrust of the story was a rumor 
and and I'm going to ask you to guess where the rumor came from, um, that Mike Pompeo might be asked to play both roles, just as Henry Kissinger did in the mid-70s. And I'd just like a quick reaction from all three of you to that great idea. Well, I think it makes perfect sense. Um, Mike Pompeo has proven himself um, so that you can expect that he will go along and get along. And if indeed it's true that Mike Pompeo was on the side of the idea that um, three days out before the anniversary of 9-11, we would have the Taliban coming to Camp David, um, and that's also in, in, in line with what Kelly was saying in terms of Trump having even greater confidence that the stagecraft of what he was going to, what he can do as president and what others would never uh, even think about as conceivable and Mike Pompeo lines up with that. Mike Pompeo is the perfect person for it. And you don't need an NSC um, coordinating everything because it's coming through. Mike Pompeo is also kind of these days uh, serving in somewhat of a military role <laughs> as well. Um, so I think that that's a, a frightening scenario. And it, it actually does destroy uh, potentially the whole interagency process because it favors uh, Mike Pompeo and the State Department as well. Yeah, by the way, um, I've written a couple of books on the NSC and – I will tell you, Henry Kissinger, no one in retrospect thinks was up <laughs> to doing both jobs at once except Henry Kissinger. Yeah, and, and let's state yeah. the obvious here. Mike, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is no Henry Kissinger. <laughs> so um, that's, that's kind of, you know, my, my uh, opening salvo on that question, David. But, mm. you know, I'm sorry to be cynical here. I just don't really think it matters if Secretary of State Pompeo is dual-hatted. I don't think that President Trump uses his national security advisor. I don't think he uses his National Security Council. I think that if Pompeo were to be named NSA, it would be a move toward Trump doing what he's done throughout his entire presidency, which is concentrating power in the hands of a very select few. He's done it with Stephen Miller. He's done it with Jared. He's done it kind of with Ivanka. And he's done it with Secretary of State Pompeo. So it would it would make sense for him to do that because he has such a small circle of trusted of, of, of people that frankly, are willing to implement his edicts no matter what. You know, we can talk about whether Secretary of State Pompeo is, you know, the chief diplomat of the United States or the, the chief diplomatic henchman of the United States and when it comes to implementing Trump's instructions. But I don't, I don't think the NSA job is relevant under Trump. And to Kelly's point, this will do irreparable damage to the bureaucracy of the National Security Council and the National Security um, officials throughout the U.S. government that will take years to repair, not to mention the damage to our relationships overseas. Uh, Kelly, can you top that? I mean, what's your view? <laughs> well, I was Wait, was I darker than Kelly? Yeah, I, I don't know, but I'm I'm really enjoying the competition between the two of you. <laughs> I was hoping Mick Mulvaney would get his like 25th job, um, or maybe <laughs> Jared Kushner would get promoted uh, from intern extraordinaire and wonder boy, the peace process. Um, yeah, I, I agree with Sam. I don't think it really matters at this point. It's clear Trump doesn't really value anything that resembles a process in a regency or otherwise. Um, but I do think that I, I would be slightly surprised if he picks Pompeo, if only because he sees Pompeo as kind of looming in his shadow. And I do think Trump likes to cut people down at the knees when he feels they're getting too big for their britches. So I'd be interested to see if he actually picks Pompeo for that reason. Yeah, well, I I think the job as you guys describe it is is has has evolved, and you know Trump has a view of foreign policy. People constantly try to imp, 
impute doctrines and strategies to him because presidents have had those in the past. He doesn't have them. He has all the instincts of a television game show host, which he was, which is to say that he's trying to figure out a way to get a good uh, photo op, uh, you know, a, a, a good kind of a reveal or a big outcome that's shocking to the crowd and positive and gets, goes to his credit. And so what he needs, if he's the game show host as a national security advisor, is kind of, you know, Don Pardo. He needs the announcer. You know, it was just sort of there to, to to frame the developments in the in the in the game show. Of course, you know, the rest of the world is not treating this like a game, Ryan. And 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 you know, one of the reasons that um Bolton uh ultimately crashed and burned um with 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 Trump had to do with Afghanistan and and he was, you know, cut out of this process and was uh, seemingly outraged at the prospect of the Taliban being invited to Camp David and 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 so forth. Um, uh, one of the rare instances where I, I think I agree with John Bolton mm. that that was a lousy idea. Um, but Afghanistan is one of the issues that demands something at the moment. Iran is another one. North Korea is another one. And I'm just wondering, you know, what do you think this period of flux is going to do in that respect? Is it going to open up opportunities for Trump to cut lousy deals and claim credit for them? Or are we going to go into uncertainty? Um, so I don't know. I, I do think that there is a part of Trump that has a certain um, instinct, and it's the isolationist instinct, <clears throat> or neo-isolationist as some are calling it, and that does track um, pulling out of Afghanistan. It does track uh, pulling out of Syria in the worst ways in terms of even if you agree with pulling out of Syria, you might think you'd not do it um, impetuously and with a tweet um, and leave allies hanging. But with that and no pushback um, from others uh, like uh, Bolton on the pullout of Syria, for example, I do think that between now and November 2020, he's going to Trump's going to be thinking about the spectacular, not about the hard work that needs to be done to even if those policy goals are the policy goals of his administration. So we're going to see certain kind of spectacular things, and he's going to play for the political um, value of it. So I do think that maybe he will sell to the base on the foreign policy issues the I pulled out of forever wars, um, and and that is a potential argument against Joe Biden that the he pivots against Joe Biden by saying, you know, this is what Obama even said, and Joe Biden said they wanted to do, um, but I did it. Um, and I think that that could be done in a sensible way, but I think he might do it in the re incredibly reckless way, uh, even if one shared those end policy objectives. And I think that's what's deeply concerning, and therefore cutting extraordinarily bad deals um, and doing it in a way that the military would never advise him to do. So that's my but let, let me let me go to Kelly first and then go to Sam. I, I know you've been writing a bunch about Afghanistan, and I think there's a strong impulse among many uh, Democrats um, to respond to policies of the Trump administration uh, or Im impulses of the Trump administration with normal policy arguments, thoughtful papers uh, grounded <laughs> in history. And and I think one of the things that Trump has demonstrated is that to his base, none of that matters. And if he says Joe Biden voted for the war in Iraq 
I got us out of the Middle East, nobody's going to hear the next sentence. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I agree with Ryan that this is a real uh, potential thing for him to do. I, I think he'll make the announcement of withdrawing troops, you know, maybe a couple of months before the election uh, in 2020, or maybe even six months before, and wait to have the impact in the, into whoever's term it is, whether it's his or someone else's uh, after 2020. I also think and he's going to do that, and he's going to be politically smart about it. Um, I think on the China trade front, I think he is now clearly in the news. It's been today, you know, out there sniffing around for a deal. I think he's starting to feel the heat, uh, economic heat from that, and is now eager to cut a deal. And I actually think if he cuts a deal, even if it's a shitty deal, uh, he's going to go out there and frame it as, "Look, I was the guy that took on, you know, China. Nobody bothered before, and yeah, it's not the perfect deal, but I got a better, you know, set of terms, right?" And, you know, I can see him kind of lining up uh, the set pieces for for a 2020 argument. Um, and, you know, he's not entirely dumb on the messaging front. No, not, no. that's his one area of, of, of dem- demonstrated aptitude. Sam, you know, uh, I, I think uh, Kelly is sort of sketching something out. You could go a step further. You could say Trump, for all of his ineptitude, mistakes, impulsiveness, lack of experience, has teed things up so you could have a real avalanche of shitty deals in the next 12 months, (laughs) right? You could have a shitty deal with North Korea. You could have a shitty deal with Iran. You could have a shitty deal with Afghanistan. You could have a shitty deal with China on trade. And Trump will shine those shitty deals up and say they're deals. And Democrats will say, well, you know, the JCPOA was better than this because of X, Y, and Z. And, you know, some Americans will listen to that, but, but some won't. And, and so, you know, and by the way, I think the Iranians, the Chinese, the North Koreans, uh, and the Taliban slash plus, you know, the Russians and some others know that Trump wants these deals. Mm-hmm. And and you know they're they're just sort of saying the the next twelve months are our best shot because if Trump loses, we're going to have problems across the board. What do you think, Sam? Uh, I totally agree with that. I mean, Trump wears his heart on his Twitter sleeve and has forecast <laughs> his desire to name himself the deal maker in chief. So I completely agree with you. He doesn't hold his cards very close to his chest. That said. He is such. Am I allowed to say the S word on the podcast? I, I, I just. A, I think I said it twelve times in the posing okay. the question. Only, only, only David. He's such a <laughs> shitty negotiator that I don't. I don't know that he's going to get deals. I mean, look. He he says that he got the USMCA, the new NAFTA, still hasn't been ratified by by Congress. You know, that's one that he claims to have in his court. But when it comes to negotiating with Iran, I mean, Kelly and I worked on this. It takes years. Right. to get a deal with Iran. When it comes to North Korea, we haven't met with our experts haven't met in I don't know, almost a year. So at this point, getting any kind of deal between now and 2020 seems like a pipe dream. What Trump may do is pretend to have a deal like he's done on other issues that he can market to his base. And you're completely right. Anybody with the brain understands that when he like floats these fantastical quote unquote agreements like he did with Kim Jong-un at their first summit, they literally mean nothing. He just markets them well. And that's that's a political question. I don't know how we kind of de-wonkify our narrative on this stuff to make very clear that 
he has achieved nothing when it comes to actual substantive deals. But I don't even know if he's going to get to some kind of photo op where he can say something was signed on Iran or on China. Well, I guess, you know, he, what he does is he gets the little chorus, the Greek chorus, bouncing on the couch on Fox and Friends saying <laughs> he's fantastic. And, you know, that, you know, that, and for some number of people that 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 works. We've only got about, I don't know, five to seven minutes to, to, to go here. Uh, and I'd like to switch gears a, li- a little bit uh, more into your lane, Ryan, but I'd like everybody's views on this. The House Judiciary Committee uh, today uh, announced that it was moving forward um, with the impeachment inquiry. Now, they'd already indicated that in court filings, but this sort of took it a step further. There's going to be a uh, hearing next week with, uh, uh, what's his name, Corey Lewandowski and 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 they're, they they've empowered subcommittees of the judiciary committee to do their own investigations, and the finance committee is doing another investigation, and uh, Adam Schiff's committee, the, the intelligence committee, is doing another set of investigations, and yet Nancy Pelosi doesn't seem to want to say the word impeach. <laughs> um, so there is a bit of a cognitive dissonance there. Do you think anything really changed today or not? Um. So I think one thing changed, but it's kind of like in the legal weeds, which is that it ratchets up the bona fides of this is a real impeachment inquiry investigation because some of the procedures mimic the Watergate investigations and and things like that. And that will play well in court uh, so that when Congress will be acting at its zenith, its powers of impeachment, and therefore may be able to get much more information and witnesses that they're demanding against the stonewalling by the White House. That's one thing I think that happened today. And then the second piece is I think that from a political perspective, Jerry Nadler's chair of the committee is committed to an outcome from this process. And I don't think anything can escape that. There might be other variables that come into play, but for the foreseeable future, it looks like he has to, at the end of the day, produce a decision and a judgment. And how did the Democrats not produce a decision or judgment that says that this president has done anything but commit impeachable offenses. In fact, it's just a menu of which ones you would choose from in a certain sense to say that. So I do think that's part of the end game. And um, But I do uh, think as well, it was a piece in the New York Times this week in the last paragraph, what might end up happening is that we get, at the end of the day, a House Judiciary Committee voting articles of impeachment of this president, which does put an asterisk in history, but never goes to the full House. Um, which does seem a bit... A letdown. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's <laughs> weak. It's not it's not yeah. strong. Uh, uh, Sam, earlier today, I, I did a podcast with uh, Ted Lieu of California. We <laughs> talked a little bit about this. Uh, he referred to a mountain of evidence um, that suggests the president committed the felony of obstruction of justice, multiple felonies, more felonies of obstruction of justice than Richard Nixon had committed. He referred to evidence. You know, that he referred to the fact that Michael Cohen is in jail because of um, uh, a campaign finance uh, felony that the president is also guilty of. They would be looking at that. They will also be looking at, um, uh, through the finance committee, some of the financing issues of the president and, and so forth. But here's what they won't be looking at, it seems to me, really closely, and that's Trump-Russia. It seems to me like they're pulling away from that, even though Robert Mueller didn't say 
there was no collusion, even though Robert Mueller didn't say there was no conspiracy. He said there was not sufficient evidence of a conspiracy. Um, and um, uh, I, I, you know, I, I think it's it's quite interesting that it seems like even the most zealous anti-Trump in pro-impeachment forces out there may just be dropping the Trump-Russia thing altogether with the exception of the it as a predicate to obstruction of justice. What do you think, Sam? Um, well, for one, it's worth noting, we don't know, I don't think, and Ryan, correct me if I'm wrong, we actually don't know if the FBI's counterintelligence investigation that President Trump ended. Is that right, Ryan? That's correct. Yeah, so we we don't know if that investigation is ongoing or not. With respect to the, the, the House strategy, um, it does feel like they're more focused on the obstruction charges rather than the counterintelligence piece of it. It is unclear to me why there's, there is seemingly a decision that serving as an asset for Russia, whether or not you're a Russian asset or you're, rather you're doing something that's helpful for Russia, wittingly or unwittingly, is no longer an impeachable offense. But I don't, I don't really know, David, why they've shifted more towards the obstruction piece. I just wonder on the, um, on the executive branch side whether there's anything ongoing. You know, they have, they have called in... Trump associates at various junctures to talk about more recently since the Mueller report came out to talk about his business ties in Russia. I, I will also note they separately opened an inquiry into potential abuses of power and the politicization of our relationship with Ukraine um, with respect to uh, the mm -hmm. 2020 election, Rudy Giuliani's field trip to meet with Ukrainian officials. So um, it, parts of this may still be live, but it does feel like there's more focus on the obstruction piece. Well, just picking up on that in the last minute or two that we've got here, Kelly, um, Robert Mueller couldn't find the sort of uh, critical pieces that said the Russians did X with the knowledge of the Trump campaign um, or uh, with the support of the Trump campaign. Um, uh, and by the Russians, we mean the Russian government. That was a key element in all of that. Um, but if you take a step back and you look at it not in terms of conspiracy law in the United States, um, conspiracy against the United States of America, uh, you, you, you do see a quid uh, and a quo. And that is the Russians helped Trump get elected. And Trump has systematically, from Mike Flynn's conversations uh, uh, during the transition uh, to... to, to uh, uh, Trump's defenses of the Russians, Trump's meeting with Putin, off-the-record meetings, handing the Russians, uh, Israeli intelligence, uh, blocking the aid to Ukraine, giving Russia the lead in Syria, giving Russia the lead in Afghanistan, uh, helping Russia's uh, 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 ally, the North Koreans, by enabling them to get stronger, attacking NATO, attacking the EU, et cetera, et cetera. Russia has benefited from a pro-Russia foreign policy that no American president of the past 75 years of either party would have supported. And that seems to me to be a quid pro quo that the House ought to be looking at, but, but it isn't. Um, and maybe because it's yeah. too much foreign policy than Judiciary Committee. But yeah. I'm just wondering what your reaction is. Well, I mean, I, listen, I, as a national security, you know, former official, I read the Mueller report and it was pretty obvious to me what went on and that it was a, an impeachable uh, scenario just from a national security perspective, putting aside all of the legal obstruction of justice 
uh, issues. I think part of this is, you know, doing, you know, doing an investigation on the obstruction of justice is less classified. So you can get more things into the public domain. So I suspect that has something to do with why the House is taking that much more of a bent away from the counterintelligence investigation. But to your point, David, I mean, everything that, you know, I saw and read was a pretty obvious indictment of the president as a potential, uh, you know, Russian asset or whatever you want to call him. But certainly there was a soft quid quo quo at, at some point. I think he's deeply, was deeply invested in by the Russians. And this is not that hard to figure out uh, at the end of the day. Anyone who reads it can, can figure it out. But, um, but yeah, so I think, I think it's a, it's a, it is pretty plain and obvious what's going on here, um, in my view. And I, I actually think this sort of impeachment light or impeachment-ish uh, move today, I actually think, you know, I love that I love my car party, the Democrats, but sometimes, you know, we just get in our own way and we're trying to have it both ways. And actually, I think at the end of the day, uh, we need to either fish or cut bait here. Couldn't agree more. This is a watershed moment in American history. The president is the principal national security threat to the United States. He has committed clear felonies. This is the time to produce a sweeping change. Um, But you have to call it what it is, and you have to act accordingly. And if you try to tiptoe around it and treat it as politics as usual, then you may get bitten by um, uh, the politics as usual. And that the other side's going to come up with counterarguments, and they're going to say this is all normal, and 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 it's going to slip through the cracks. Uh, look, this I think has been a great conversation. We are so glad that you could have joined us today, Kelly and Sam, and of course Brian. Uh, uh, and uh, we hope that uh, those of you out there in Deep State Radio Land will listen um, to uh, future episodes. Follow us again. Hopefully, we'll persuade. Um, all these folks to come back. And if you like what you've heard, go to the dsrnetwork.com, sign up, become a, become a member. It's incredibly cheap, but you know you might get a mug out of it and it helps us do more of these shows. Um, uh, listen to the Ted Lou conversation I had on National Security Magazine, uh, which is up now and was is great and full of full of news. Uh, listen to our other podcasts and uh, we'll see you again real soon. Thanks guys. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.